Hi everyone, my name's Matt and I'm a member at Christchurch. It's great to be with you this morning, I hope you've had a good weekend so far. We're going to be spending the next half an hour or so looking at the Bible together. So you might need to grab yourself a Bible, get one up on your phone, you might need to give the children something to do, or you might want to grab yourself a refill on that tea or coffee to keep you going. While you're doing that, why don't I pray for us before we start? The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. Father, we thank you that you've spoken to us through your word. And we thank you that your words are perfect, trustworthy and right. We pray that as we look at your word today, we'd be refreshed and made wise. And we pray that as we think about Jesus, we'd have joyful hearts as we think about what he's done for us. Amen. Cancelled. It's a word that we've become really used to hearing over the last four months. Holidays cancelled, school cancelled, entire sports seasons cancelled to protect us from coronavirus. As an Everton fan, I wish that the Premier League did get cancelled. But it's not just events that we've been seeing cancelled lately, but people. As we spent more time online over the last decade, cancel culture has become a trend. If someone says or does something that we disagree with, we cancel that person. We attack them online, their fans desert them, and their plans for the future are ruined. Cancel culture is a scary movement because it gives us a window into a world without mercy. One mistake is enough to define you, and one mistake is enough to ruin your future. Now, most of us watching probably aren't famous enough to get cancelled, but let's just imagine for a moment that we all related to each other on the rules and basis of cancel culture. Let's imagine if one mistake really was enough to leave us with no friends and no future. We'd all be terrified, wouldn't we? We'd be scared of getting too close to someone in case we say something that leads to us getting cancelled. We'd be scared that something from our past would be dragged back up again and used against us. And we'd be right to be scared. Because I think if we're all being completely honest, we all know that there's parts of us that simply don't pass the test. If people knew every thought we'd had, every word we'd spoken, everything we'd done, we'd be cancelled in an instant. And we'd deserve it too. John Steinbeck said it well in his novel East of Eden when he said, my imagination will earn me a passport into hell one day. Cancel culture gives us a window into a world without mercy and it's a scary place to be. Yet Christians, we live by a different story. When faced with our failings, cancel culture tells us to hide them, bury them deep where no one will find them. But as Christians, we face our failings head on and with a confidence that because of Jesus, we won't be put to shame. In the confession that we sometimes read together on Sundays, we confess aloud, we freely admit that we've sinned in thought, word and deed. We admit that we constantly fall short of the standard. 
And we also confess that our failings aren't just a casual mistake that we make, but we admit that we sin through weakness, through negligence, through our own deliberate fault. Cancel culture says, hide your feelings. Christianity says, confess them because Jesus has paid for them. Christians can face up to their failings, knowing that they're forgiven and knowing that we are reconciled to God. And because of that, we can forgive people who wrong us too. Over the next two weeks, we're going to look at Paul's letter to his friend Philemon. And we're going to see that there's a word that's even more powerful than that fear-inducing word, cancelled. We're going to see that there is another way and another word. And that word is reconciled. In his letter to Philemon, Paul steps into a situation that seems too messy to solve. And instead of cancelling, instead of condemning, he applies the gospel to two men who have a broken relationship. And it's almost as though he's applying a dock leaf to an angry nettle sting. As we look at the letter to Philemon this week, we're going to see three things. Firstly, Christians don't hide from complicated situations. But secondly, Christians remember the power of the gospel. And finally, Christians apply the gospel to their lives. So first of all, Christians don't hide from complicated situations. Let's try and put ourselves into this letter for a moment. Paul wrote the letter to Philemon while he was under house arrest in Rome. And he sent two men to deliver the letter, Tychicus and Onesimus. We're going to imagine for a minute that we're Tychicus. Paul has given you a letter to the church in Colossae with instructions for them and an update on what's happening with Paul. There's a long journey ahead, but you know that for your friend Onesimus, this journey is far more personal and far more dangerous. He has a letter for his former slave master, Philemon. As you've traveled together, Onesimus has shared his story with you. He, he tells you how he has stolen from his master, Philemon, how he's traveled to Rome to make a new life for himself. But then in Rome, he's become a Christian and his life has been turned upside down. And now he tells you he's traveling 1300 miles from Rome back to Colossae, hoping to be reconciled to Philemon. You've gotten to know him over the journey and it's been a dangerous one. If a bounty hunter were to catch Onesimus, they'd put him in chains and take him back to Philemon in exchange for money. But you've made it, you've made the long journey, and now you stand together outside Philemon's house and Onesimus is ready to knock. As his friend, you have one last chance to say something to him, maybe to pray for him. What do you say? I think that most of us wouldn't quite know what to say. This is a complicated situation. And it was a complicated situation for Paul to write into as well. For starters, Onesimus is a slave. Now this isn't the same slave trade that our minds jump to when we hear that word. This is not the transatlantic slave trade. That was a slavery that is race-based, 
starts with a horrendous kidnapping and is lifelong. This slavery is not that. Slaves aren't slaves because of their race. There's many different routes into slavery and it isn't lifelong. But that being said, you certainly don't want to be a slave. To be a slave is to be property, not a person. And the fact that Paul is sending Onesimus back to his former master is shocking. And it shows us just how powerful he thinks that the gospel is. Another complication. Paul cares deeply about both of these men. There's a real risk of him losing relationships if this letter is not received well. First of all, Paul cares deeply about Philemon. Paul's actually the reason that Philemon became a Christian in the first place. Philemon is a wealthy man who lives in Colossae, which is the next city along from Ephesus. And in Acts 19, we, we read that Paul is teaching in Ephesus. He's teaching every day in a local lecture hall. But this isn't some dry and boring theology. This is exciting stuff. People are talking about it and listening and loads are gathering each day to hear. And more than that, God is using Paul to perform miracles that mean that people just can't ignore his message. Get this, even the handkerchiefs that Paul has touched are being given out to sick people and they're being healed. Handing out handkerchiefs like that, Paul would not last long as a preacher in a coronavirus world. But Philemon, he's headed to Ephesus and he's probably seen the crowd listening to Paul and he's been drawn in for himself. And for the first time, he's heard the gospel message and it's changed him. He's heard about how he, Philemon, is a sinner, how he's rejected God and how his sin leaves him estranged from God. And he faces God's judgment and a future spent away from God. But he's also heard about how God, being rich in mercy and love, has sent his own son, Jesus, to take Philemon's sin on himself. Die the death that Philemon deserved. Philemon is now free. His debt's been paid. And then he's heard how Jesus, he rose from the grave, defeating death and giving Philemon an unshakable, unwavering hope of eternity spent with God. He's now a Christian with the spirit of God living inside him and he's become part of God's family. And that means that he and Paul share a deep and personal friendship. In verse 1, Paul calls him a dear friend and a fellow worker in the gospel. Paul knows his wife, Aphia, and his son, Archippus, too. And he calls them a sister and a fellow soldier. And whenever Paul prays for Philemon, he prays with joy. Because Philemon has a reputation for loving God and loving God's people. Philemon and Paul share a partnership in the faith. Philemon, his love has given Paul great joy and encouragement. And Paul calls him his brother in verse 7. Paul cares about Philemon. If Philemon doesn't like this letter, Paul will be hurt. And for us today, I, I think this means this. Our fellow Christians aren't just people who believe the same message as we do. They're not just people who share a set of moral values with us. They're our dear brothers and sisters 
and they bring us joy. And isn't that something that we are really aware of at the moment when we can't physically meet together and enjoy the fellowship of our brothers and sisters? We miss the joy that being with them brings us. The gospel, it doesn't seem to form lukewarm relationships. And if you're watching and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian or you still have questions, can I ask you, ask someone to read the Bible with you. You stand nothing to lose, everything to gain. And from looking at Paul and Philemon's relationship, one of the things that you could gain is a set of relationships that you'll come to cherish. This is a complicated situation for Paul to write into because he doesn't just care about Philemon, but about Onesimus too. Onesimus has had a hard life. Anything up to a third of the population of the Roman Empire were slaves. And Onesimus was a popular name for a slave because Onesimus means useful. Can you imagine what that does to a man being called useful? It reinforces the fact that you're not a person, you're property. But Onesimus hasn't actually been very useful at all. In fact, Paul kind of jokes a bit later and says he's been useless. We don't know what kind of master Philemon was to Onesimus, but Onesimus has stolen from Philemon and has taken his life into his own hands. When Onesimus ran away, he ran to Rome where he could get lost easily and start a new life. And he's either become desperate with a lack of opportunities or he's randomly bumped into Paul somehow. And for Paul, whether he's teaching in a lecture hall in Ephesus with hundreds and hundreds in front of him, or whether he's one-on-one -on -one under house arrest with a runaway slave, there's only one thing that he wants to talk about, Jesus. And so Onesimus has heard the exact same message that his master Philemon heard, and he's come to believe it too. He too has God's spirit living within him, the hope of an eternity spent with God, and he too has joined God's family as an adopted son. And so Paul loves Philemon and he loves Onesimus too. And in sending Onesimus back to Philemon, Paul is taking a big risk. In running away, Onesimus has made himself a useless slave. He's stolen from Philemon and he's publicly embarrassed him. The neighbours will be talking. And legally, Philemon now holds all the power over Onesimus. If he ever sees Onesimus again, there'll be pressure on Philemon to punish him. If Philemon is feeling kind, he could brand Onesimus on his forehead so that everyone in the future knows that he's a runaway slave who shouldn't be trusted. His future would be ruined. That's if Philemon is feeling kind. If Philemon isn't feeling so kind, he also has full legal authority to put Onesimus to death. The pressure's on him to punish severely. It's a really complicated situation, but Christians don't hide from complicated situations. Now that Onesimus and Philemon are both Christians, they're both part of the same family. And if that's true, then this isn't just an argument between two men, it's a family spat. And that's a tragedy of the highest order.
And so for Onesimus, whose life has been turned upside down by the gospel, if he's been reconciled to God, then reconciliation with Philemon is worth at least one shot. Christians don't hide from complicated situations because they remember the power of the gospel. In the early 1800s, during the transatlantic slave trade, there was a Bible that was given to slaves, but only parts of the Bible. The original title for this Bible was Parts of the Holy Bible Selected for the Use of Negro Slaves. Any parts of the Bible that might give slaves thoughts of freedom were taken out. And you can bet that the letter to Philemon was taken out of that Bible. Because in it, we see that the gospel is so powerful that it's going to insert a time bomb into the institution of slavery that will completely destroy it. The gospel is powerful. The gospel is the only thing that can give Onesimus the conviction that he needs to go and be reconciled to Philemon. The gospel is the only thing that can give Onesimus the courage to face death and do it with hope. And the gospel is the only thing that can shatter the dynamic between a slave and his master and form a new bond between them of brothers. The gospel is powerful. It levels the playing field and it changes lives. And Paul is confident that because of the gospel, he can send Onesimus back to Philemon because Philemon's going to do even more than he asks. And the power of the gospel means that Paul won't use force, but he's going to make his appeal out of love. Let's read verses eight and nine together. Paul says this, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do as you ought to do, yet I prefer to make my appeal to you on the basis of love. It's as none other than Paul, an old man and now a prisoner for Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus. Paul is an apostle. Jesus has appeared to him in a vision and now the whole church listens to his voice. He could pull rank and order Philemon to release Onesimus and Philemon would listen. But Paul doesn't write as an apostle here, but as an old man and a prisoner for Christ Jesus. And he doesn't use force, but he makes his appeal on the basis of love. That leaves us with a question, doesn't it? Why doesn't Paul use force? Surely that's the easiest way to, to win Onesimus his freedom. Paul doesn't use force because when it comes to the gospel, love trumps everything else. Godly behaviour must never be won by force because love trumps everything else. And so godly behaviour must be won on the basis of love. When it comes to the gospel, the journey is just as important as the destination. A good result does not justify unloving means. With the gospel, love trumps all. So for us today, when we're sharing our faith, an angry argument about why God exists won't do, even if the intentions are good. Or with our children as parents, we want to raise them to be godly children. We want to raise them to do the right thing. But godly behaviour cannot be won by force. It must be done on the basis of love. We kindly raise them. We 
gently teach them. We gently restore them. And finally with ourselves. We can't force godly behaviour out of ourselves. We can't do that without remembering that we're first loved by God. Our own godly behaviour is not won by force, but on the basis of love. The gospel doesn't aim at our wallet first. It doesn't aim at our possessions first. It doesn't even aim at our behaviour first. The gospel aims first at our hearts. And when our hearts have been won, anything is possible. And that's why Paul won't force Philemon to do the right thing. Because force makes slaves. And we've seen what that does with Onesimus. Slaves run away. But love, well, love makes brothers. That's the power of the gospel. And the power of the gospel has changed each of these men's lives. Philemon, the, the wealthy businessman who now runs a church in his house. Paul, the man who hated Jesus, who persecuted the church, but now serves Jesus and is a prisoner for Jesus. But if you want to see the power of the gospel in a man's life, look no further than Onesimus. Let's read verses 10 and 11. Paul says this, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he's become useful both to you and to me. Onesimus, Mr. Useful, he stole from his master and travelled 1,300 miles to start a new life. His name was demeaning, but he was useless to Philemon as a slave because he didn't do his job. But now the gospel has changed him and Paul calls him useful, truly useful. And not just useful in the way that he should have been as a slave, but useful in a way that is far more profound and far more beautiful. Useful because as a brother, he's now a partner in the gospel, a fellow worker spreading the message of Jesus with equal status. Useful because as a brother, he will teach Philemon things of the gospel. And when Philemon needs to be picked up and reminded that Jesus is worth following, Onesimus is going to be right there next to him to do it. And useful because whenever Philemon looks at Onesimus, he's going to be reminded of the power of the gospel and he's going to serve Jesus far more wholeheartedly and far more joyfully as a result. Paul reminds Philemon of Onesimus' worth in verse 16. He's very dear to me, but even dearer to you as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. Onesimus, Mr. Useful. Not a slave, but a brother. Do we see how powerful the gospel is, how it changes our lives and our relationships? But Christians don't just remember the gospel, they apply it to their lives too. So finally, Christians apply the gospel to their lives. The way that Paul has been loved by Jesus spills out into his actions and it allows him to mend this broken relationship. Let's look at verses 17 to 21. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you welcome me. If he's done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. 
I pull and write in this with my own hand, I will pay it back. Not to mention that you owe me your very self. I do wish, brother, that my, I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you'll do even more than I ask. You can see the way that Paul has been loved by Jesus spilling out into his actions. In verse 17, as Paul stands before Philemon with an arm around Onesimus, he says, this is my brother. Welcome him as you welcome me. Isn't that incredible? What a picture of Jesus who stands before his father with his arms around us and says, Father, these are my brothers and sisters. Welcome them as you welcome me. Paul gets a hero's welcome in Philemon's house. And now Onesimus gets that welcome too. Isn't it wonderful? Onesimus, who goes to Philemon's house fearing death, is welcomed in the same way as Paul does. And Paul later on doesn't have any problems saying, look, prepare me a room, I'm coming. And there's more too. In verse 19, as Paul promises to pay any debts that Onesimus owes, he mirrors the actions of his saviour, Jesus, who takes all of our debt onto himself, all of our sin, and he pays for it at the cross. Paul doesn't just remember the gospel. He allows the gospel to change him and he applies it to his life. And Paul expects Philemon to apply the gospel too. Read verse 21 again with me. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you'll do even more than I ask. Paul takes a risk in sending Onesimus back to Philemon. But he expects that Philemon is not just a Christian in his thoughts, but in his actions too. It's a contradiction for Philemon to accept the gospel and not to apply it to his life. In the Lord's Prayer, Philemon and we pray, forgive us our sins, as we forgive those who sin against us. Just as we've been forgiven by God and welcomed into his family, we offer that forgiveness and welcome to people who have wronged us. And to be honest, I, I don't know what this means for each of our lives, but here are three things that have struck me as I've read Philemon. Firstly, reconciliation is costly. Paul doesn't pretend that there's no cost involved for reconciliation to take place. Onesimus has wronged Philemon. And for us too, reconciliation is costly. We will all be aware of situations in our lives that we'd rather not do the costly work of reconciliation. Maybe that's one of the reasons that cancel culture seems so attractive. It's far easier to cut someone out than to work towards reconciliation. But we can see from reading this letter just how highly Paul values reconciliation. He's happy to take whatever the cost is on himself. And so I think the question for us here is, do we value reconciliation as highly as Paul does? Secondly, reconciliation needs someone to take the initiative. When Paul and Onesimus met, the relationship between Philemon and Onesimus is dead in the water and there's 1,300 miles between them in Rome and Colossae. But Paul and Onesimus take the initiative to bring about reconciliation. 
I think the question for us here is, where can I take the initiative to bring about reconciliation? And this isn't about becoming interfering, meddling people, but it's about becoming peacemakers who love reconciliation. And finally, reconciliation works best when I remember what Jesus has done for me. Reconciliation takes a lot of work, but when we consider the price that Jesus paid to reconcile us to God, suddenly our next steps become much clearer. I wonder if you've ever seen this graffiti in Liverpool. It, it's at the bottom of London Road and it asks passers-by, do you think you're more intelligent than the average person? The first time I read that graffiti, I had to check that they'd spelt the word intelligent right, so I think that gave me my answer. But I wonder how you'd answer that. Do you think you're more intelligent than the average person? And how would you answer that if we change that word intelligent and put that word sinful in? Do you think you're more sinful than the average person? I'm not asking us that to make us consider other people's sin next to ours and feel good or terrible, but just to consider our sin. If you're anything like me, it's really easy to forget the fact that we're sinful. And we start to think that God must be pleased with us for our good actions. And Jesus tells us that if, if that's our attitude, if we think we've only been forgiven of little things, then we will only love God with a small love and love other people with a small love too. But the flip side, the person who's been forgiven much, they love much. All too often I fool myself into thinking that I've been forgiven of little sin. And so my love for God and my love for other people looks small. But Paul, he knows how much he's been forgiven. And so he loves God and other people with a huge heart. And he's willing to do whatever it takes to make reconciliation happen. Reconciliation works best when we remember what Jesus has done for us. As we finish, let's just head back to uh, East of Eden by John Steinbeck. In one chapter, three characters get out the Bible together and they start to discuss it. And one character says this, No story has power, nor will it last, unless we feel in ourselves that it is true and true of us. Do we know that the gospel is true? Do we know that Jesus died and rose again and that anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame? Do we know that it's true of us? True of us that we receive the same welcome from the Father as Jesus does. If we know it's true and true of us, then this is a story with incredible power. When I was younger, I was dreadful at drawing. Our fridge would have looked absolutely horrendous with all my drawings on it. But it didn't matter because I'd get a good drawing. I'd place some tracing paper over the top of that and I would draw something far better than anything I could draw on my own. And as we read Philemon, we're invited to see the gospel message of reconciliation to God through Jesus and place the tracing paper of our lives over that story. What a picture we could draw if we do that. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that in Jesus, you do not count our sins against us, 
but instead you reconcile us to yourself. We pray that we will be people who are changed by that message. People who know that we're forgiven and forgive others just as we've been forgiven. And we pray that as we do that, people would see just what a saviour Jesus is. Amen.